So if you have your Bibles with you, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 18, we'll begin reading at verse 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Jerry will slip you a Bible so you can read with us as we cover verses 1 through 14 of Luke chapter 18. We do read in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Then he, that is Jesus, spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And so even as we've traveled through Luke's gospel, we have seen that Jesus, to his disciples, has placed an importance of prayer in their lives. Jesus has exemplified it by praying to his Father. Oftentimes they saw him get up early and go to a quiet place and he would pray. So Jesus was one that prayed to his fathers, and it was the disciples, you recall, that would go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. And I find that interesting, because the disciples never said, teach us to preach a powerful sermon, or teach us to do outreach, or teach us to do, you know, uh, whatever it may be, miracles. But they said, teach us to pray. So prayer has been an importance to the life of Jesus, and also to the disciples as he's told them that they need to pray. We as believers, we know that we need to pray. And as we begin this chapter, our Lord is telling this parable so that once again, not only are we told the importance of prayer, but to be persistent in prayer and to understand that we have a privilege to pray. You might recall in Luke chapter 11 that Jesus told a parable of a friend that came to a man's house. And he knocked on his door. It was at midnight. He wanted some bread. And the man in the house said, go away. Don't trouble me. My kids are in bed. We're all uh, put away for the night. But that friend kept knocking on the door. And finally, the man got up and he gave him some bread. And Jesus, in that contrast, and it was a contrast parable, in other words, that how much more your father who is good, that as you ask and as you seek and as you knock, that he is going to give you good gifts because you are his children. And we're going to see another contrast here as we go through this parable. Paul the Apostle would write in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, that you and I, that we are to continue in prayer. It speaks about how we should be persistent and be steadfast in praying. Paul would talk about Epaphras, who was a leader of the Church of Colossae, how he labored fervently in prayer for the believers. And oftentimes as Christians, particularly when we lose heart and our hearts faint because of hurt or confusion or because of need or difficulty, what we do is we stop praying instead of being consistent in prayer and not fading. And, and what we do is we turn it around and we're constantly fading and we're not praying. Oftentimes people will see me when they're going through difficult times and I want them to. And, and I'll say, have you stopped and prayed about this? Have you really gone to the Lord? And they'll say, well, uh, I've just so, you know, uh, overwhelmed with all this that's going on. I really haven't prayed. And I will say, let's just stop for a moment and let's just pray right now. And to encourage them to keep seeking their father. So Jesus, as he begins to tell this parable, it's interesting here about being persistent in prayer. 
This parable is unique in that when Jesus, as we have seen going through Luke's gospel, would give a parable, oftentimes at the end of that parable, he would then give the meaning of the parable or he would give a conclusion concerning the parable. Here, what makes it unique is he tells us the purpose of the parable before he even tells the parable itself. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And as we read him uh, telling the parable in verse 2 of chapter 18, he says, Jesus, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. In verse 6, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not uh, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And so this judge in this parable is an unjust judge. He's an ungodly man. He did not fear God. He did not regard man, verse 2, which means that he didn't care about people. He wasn't sensitive to them. He didn't care if he gave them justice or not. And then we see in the story there is this widow. Now keep in mind all the way through Scripture that we see that God has a very special place in his heart for widows, for orphans, for the poor. And in that special place of widows that God has, we see, for example, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy in that pastoral epistle Timothy, this is how you're to run the church. The church is to be conducted, the order of the church. And he gives Timothy even very specific instructions on how to minister to the widows, how to meet their needs. That's how important it was to the Lord. He doesn't tell Timothy, here's how to have a dynamic youth ministry, or here's how to have real good agape groups, or here's how to do dynamic outreach or have great worship. He says to Timothy, listen, this is important to God. Take care of the widows, and this is how you do that. So the widows have a very special place in God's heart. And here is this widow. She is persistent in her coming to the judge in pleading for justice for her cause. And the judge finally says, okay, I'll avenge her. This woman is troubling me. She is wearing on me and, and continually coming to me. I imagine every time he came to the office, there she is right there. Or every time he came out for lunch, there she is right there waiting for him. She was continually, persistently coming to him, desiring for him to work on her behalf. Now, sometimes people will read this parable and they will ask, is the unjust judge a representation of our father? And keep in mind, as I've already said, just like in chapter 11 of Luke, when he told that parable of that friend that came to that man's house at midnight, keep in mind that that was a contrast. This parable is a contrast, not a comparison. In other words, the unjust judge does not represent God. This widow had to overcome the judge's reluctance to act to respond to her requests. And we are not being shown here in this parable that we ought to always pray and not faint because 
our God does not regard us or is reluctant to help us or doesn't care to hear from us. Jesus is not putting his father in that kind of light. He's not putting his father uh, in helping us or, you know, wanting us to see that he's indifferent to us. That's not the, the purpose of this parable. This parable is one of contrast in saying to us that God is not the unjust judge, but if the unjust judge will answer the persistent request, how much more will a righteous God who loves you, who desires for you to come and keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking, is going to answer when we come to him in prayer. This woman had to overcome the judge's reluctance to help. And sometimes as Christians, we can feel that way. That I got to keep coming to the Lord. I got to keep being persistent uh, because you're reluctant to, to work on my behalf. I don't think that most of us, if not all of us, that it, we don't have a problem believing that God can help us and has the power to help us. Where we can really struggle in is, Lord, are you willing to? Are you willing to help me? Are you willing to work on my behalf? Lord, do you really care? Do you really see? Are you really listening to me? So if we have that kind of perspective, we're missing the point of the parable. Jesus is not saying that men always ought to pray and not lose heart because God is reluctant. Listen, because he is not reluctant. And that is my encouragement and that is your encouragement to continue to pray. We have the privilege to come and pray to our Father who desires for us to come to him, who does listen to us. So don't in your mind draw a parallel that God is like this judge and I got to keep pestering him until I get what I want if your cause is right, if your cause is just. You see, the Lord desires for us to come to him. Because he wants to hear from us. Now, it's kind of interesting. When you move into chapter 18, really it's a continuation of chapter 17. We've seen that Jesus, at the end of this parable, is talking about the coming of the Son of Man. Will he find faith on the earth? And here, as he's speaking about that, in chapter 17, if you were with us last week, we talked about the coming of the Son of Man. He turns to his disciples and he says, there's going to be a time where you're going to long to see the days of the coming of the Son of Man, but you're not going to see it. In other words, what's going to happen not long from this time here, because Jesus in the next chapter is getting ready to go up to Jerusalem in his final week before he is crucified and buried and he rises again from the grave. And then 40 days after Passover, he's the Passover lamb that was slain for uh, the sins of the world. 40 days comes Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where God pours out his spirit on those disciples in that upper room, telling them to wait for the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And these disciples, not long from now, are going to be going out throughout the known world, and they're going to be bringing the gospel, and they're going to go out in power. It's incredible, uh, the work of God, the miracles that was done in you know, the early church with these apostles here, but it was also a very difficult time as well. And they're going to face persecution and difficulty. 
And Jesus is telling them that men ought to always pray and not faint because they're going to be overwhelmed with all the challenges that they're going to be facing and, and the persecution and tribulations that they will go through. It's interesting as he talks about the coming of the Son of Man, as he says in verse 7, shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? And in verse 8, I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. It reminds me of what we read in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, verse 10, when the tribulation saints are crying out in that fifth seal that how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth. A very difficult time. Listen. Why should we pray so we faint not? Because life becomes very overwhelming for us at times. And maybe you're in a season right now where your heart hurts, where you're going through difficult times, where you're needing wisdom, you're wondering, Lord, what's going to happen? How are you going to provide? We need to continually go to a loving Father and be praying to Him and be asking and seeking and knocking and knowing this, that He desires for you to come to Him. And as we are in this life, that we experience tribulation because Jesus said that you will have tribulation, not that you might have tribulation, but you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. And those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And this day and age can be difficult for us as Christians that we get persecuted to one degree or another, whether it's from our own family members or those at work or old friends or whatever it is that we end up facing because we are Christians. We need to keep praying and faint not and going to a loving Father because He knows our needs. And that's a wonderful thing. That Jesus, you recall that he said that God knows your needs. He knows what your needs are. And there are those who then come to me and say, well, if God knows our needs before we even ask, why should I even pray? Well, we need to pray so we faint not. And you see, in coming to the Lord and being persistent, I don't want us to think, well, I've got to keep coming to the Lord and I've got to keep bugging him. I, I, that picture of the unjust judge, I've got to keep coming to get his attention, to get what I want. He's reluctant to. Don't think in that way. He desires to work. But keep in mind this, that he has our eternal good in mind. Do you know that? He wants to work in your life. Paul says that he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That he wants to work all things for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. That he promises in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that being confident of this very thing, that he will complete that work that he's doing in our lives. That we know that he will perfect, even as David said in the Psalms, that which concerns us. He knows our needs. He has a will and a plan for our lives. But we come to him because it strengthens us. And we go to him and it's like as we keep going to him, He's going to help us sort things out. He's going to minister to us. He's going to be answering us. And you see, it's not always yes. You see, prayer is more than, here's my list, as we come to him. Yes, we give him our needs and our wants and our desires and the things that are on our hearts and, and those things that, that, that trouble us. We come to him, and as we commune with him, as we go to him, 
know that he desires to work and know this, that he says yes sometimes. It's wonderful when he does, isn't it? When you pray for something and the Lord answers yes and he works right away, but other times because he has your eternal good in mind and the loving father that he is, sometimes he will say no. And I have learned in my life that no can be a very wonderful answer. Because I've looked back and I've prayed and I've gone to the Lord over and over about something. Lord, oh, how I desire this, how I need this, how I want this. And the Lord said no because he knew that it would not be good for me. Or he had something better. Or it wasn't the right time. And we need to understand that that we don't just go to the Lord and be persistent and bugging, hoping that God's still going, oh, man, that Jeff, he just keeps coming to me. I'm just going to give up and give what he wants. We don't do that as parents, do we? Your kids come to you before dinner, and they're asking for cookies and ice cream. Are you going to give in, even though they ask, and they'll come back the next day and ask? Or they're asking for that thing that isn't good. We as parents, we want their good. We know what is good for them. And sometimes we say no. Or sometimes you need to wait till after dinner. Or sometimes the Lord says, I got something even better for you. And I have found in my own life, listen, that oftentimes he has something so much better than I ever thought. Because he wants to do exceedingly abundantly. That his ways are so much higher than my ways. And that's where we can trust in him. That's where we can say, Lord, I know that you desire to do good in my life. And you see, as I pray, it's not so much getting my will done on earth, but Lord, what your will is. I think that is the prayer of the mature Christian. Lord, here are my needs. Here's my requests. Certainly you want me to, to keep coming and knocking and seeking and asking. And Lord, whatever you have for me, I'm going to trust that you're going to work in the best way in eternity's perspective to grow me, to use me. And you see, prayer helps me a lot of times sort things out. He begins to speak to me. He begins to show me scripture. He begins to show things in my life that, Lord, you do know what you're doing. And Lord, in this, even in those times where I may not see you working, you are working. And you're doing a work in me to bring me to that place, to know you more and to love you more. Do you realize that's the greatest thing for a Christian to have is to continue to know him and to love him? It isn't that the Lord's desiring to raise spoiled children and I'm going to keep coming to him and be persistent to name it and claim it and, and demand and command and all of this. It is, Lord, listen. Whatever your will is for me, but not my will, but your will be done. And I know that you're going to work in a way that's going to be a tremendous blessing. And you're going to work in a way that you're going to lead me in the right way because your ways are true. Can we trust the Lord in that? He wants you to keep coming. So you faint not. He wants you to keep coming so that you can keep hearing from him and him ministering to your heart. So Lord, uh, as I come to you,
You're going to work in me and through me. Your will be done. So Jesus is not saying that God is like the unjust judge. He is saying I'm totally unlike the unjust judge. But he is illustrating by contrast. If a man who is so hardened, so callous, so crooked that he had no regard for God or man, if he can be persuaded by the persistency of a widow, shall not God avenge his children speedily? Then Jesus asked a very interesting question in verse 8. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? We are told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, in the Olivet Discourse, that one of the signs of the end of the age would be the iniquity in the earth abounding, causing the love of many to wax cold. I think that goes along with this question. In other words, I believe that we are living in the hardest period of history to live a consistent, consecrated Christian life. I don't believe that ever in the history has there been more temptation placed upon us, you know, so freely. And it happens with all the voices in the media and Hollywood and the Internet and social media. It's all around us, bombarding us constantly. And because it is so accessible and it is there you know, speaking to us, pulling us in, drawing us constantly, we see that the iniquity in the world is abounding. Jesus said last week that my coming is like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And even though there was normal routine of giving to marriage and, and buying and selling and building, there was also, as we know, in the days of Noah, great wickedness and iniquity iniquity that filled the earth, violence. And we know the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot was and it had to be taken out as God poured out his judgment on it. But it's like today that there's evil that is abounding so much. And the love of many is waxing cold. And the question that Jesus asks becomes very significant. When I return or when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? True, genuine faith and trust in this word. And then he goes into a parable speaking about prayer in verse 9. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And verse 10 tells us that two men went up on the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And a tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus just got through telling his disciples, men ought to always pray and not lose heart. And now his disciples are told this parable, two individuals that go to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. We've talked about the sect of the Pharisees, ultra-religious. They were legalists. Uh, and on the other side of the spectrum, you have this tax collector. We've talked about them as well. They were ones that were usually hated. They were usually dishonest. They were considered traitors. And these two are the greatest contrast that you can have in the eyes of the people. Vastly two completely different people. 
But mostly what we're going to see is they have two different hearts. Jesus tells us this incredibly simple parable that gives us a powerful lesson for us today. Both men come to the temple. Both of them pray. Both of them begin their prayer with the word God, addressing God. But one leaves justified, the other does not. One is trusting in his goodness in himself. The other understands that he cannot trust in himself in his own goodness. The Pharisee, he stood and prayed thus with himself. The Greek says that what he does is he comes and he makes his stand in confidence and he prayed thus with himself. He did not pray within himself. He prayed with himself. He did not pray to God. He is praying in favor of himself. He's not only trying to impress God, but he's trying to impress those around him. It's in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus said concerning the Pharisees that they love to be heard of men when they pray. And they did that to impress and wow those who would hear them praying. So here's this one that he's praying out loud, praying thus with himself. And this Pharisee, he comes up as he walks up the steps to the temple proper. He walks by the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. He walks by into the court of Israel, pushes himself right up to the front, to the front wall. And he stands there in confidence, in his own confidence. And he begins to pray out loud. Lord, I thank thee. And notice that he doesn't thank God for one single thing. He's making a statement. And five times he uses that personal pronoun, I. He has an I problem here. I'm not like other men. I'm not unjust. Interesting, the implication very clearly is that I am just because I am a Pharisee and I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And I just picture him as he's there in confidence, standing there, praying out loud for men to hear. He's looking around, perhaps, and he's saying, I thank you that I'm like, like him. And he looks, or like him, or that tax collector that's in the back, because I am so religious. If you walked up to this guy and said, you need a savior, he would laugh at you. If you told him that he needs to say the sinner's prayer, he would be greatly offended. If you said to him, you need to ask Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, he would be angry and probably start yelling at you, telling you how much of a sinner you are because he has so much self-assurance in himself. You see, we talk to people that maybe not exactly as boastful as this Pharisee, but we talk to people, don't we? You need to savior the world, Jesus. You need to be forgiven of your sins. They'll say, don't give me that Jesus stuff. Don't give me the cross stuff that I need to be forgiven. I'm okay. I'm a good person. I'm a good father, a good mother. I'm a good parent. I'm a, a, a good you know, person. I, I provide for my family. I work hard. I, I belong to the church. I, my parents were Christians. I do good things, and they think their good outweighs their bad. Don't tell me about that I need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ because they're trusting in themselves. And here's one that he's trusting so much in himself, boasting in himself. He's even boasting that he's outdone the law. I fast twice a week. 
Because the law, as you read the book of Leviticus, there's only one time a year that they were required to fast, Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement. Only once a year. This guy's saying, I fast 104 times a year. I fast every Thursday and every Monday because they believe that Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law on a Thursday. Forty days later, he came down on a Monday. I do what the law wants, and I even do more. I tithe of everything, even the herbs in my garden, as Jesus said. That's what you Pharisees do. But you do it in hypocrisy. I give more than what is required. I don't need a Savior. And he didn't understand that the law didn't justify him. But the law for all of us declares us guilty. That is something that we need to all understand and the message that we need to declare to others. You see, I remember talking to my dad. My dad worked hard, and he, he provided for us. And I said, Dad, you're a good man, but you're not good enough. And for him to know that we've all fallen short, and we've all sinned, And the wages of sin is death. And when he understood that, he gave his life to the Lord. And I'm so thankful for that. Because he's gone home to be with the Lord. And we can talk to others who say, well, I'm a good person. I work hard. I'm sincere. But you're not good enough. Because we're all guilty. And you see, the law was given to show us that we've broken the law. And as a tutor to drive us to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the law will not justify anyone. It only declares our guilt. And if a man, think about this, could keep the law, the law given in the book of Exodus, what came after Exodus? The sacrificial system. If man could keep the law, then the sacrificial system would not have had to be given. And when you brought that lamb to be sacrificed, it wasn't that you had to be without spot and blemish. That lamb had to be without spot and blemish. This Pharisee doesn't understand that. He doesn't need a sacrifice, he thinks. He doesn't need anything from God. He's better than anyone else around him in his arrogance and pride and he stood and he thus he prayed to himself and he didn't understand what the tax collector understood that he needed to be forgiven that we're going to see that even this tax collector as we read in verse 13 standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you, when Jesus says, I tell you, he's speaking with authority, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector prayed seven words, standing from afar off. He doesn't raise his eyes to heaven. He speaks out of brokenness and true humility. And the reason I say true humility is because I believe there is a false humility. And Paul touches on a false humility in Colossians chapter 2. He's not making excuses. He's not boasting, I'm going to do better because that only is done out of the flesh. He comes in his brokenness and humility and knowing his need and he says, Lord, be merciful to me. But here's the interesting thing. We know that mercy means not getting what we deserve. He has given us mercy, hasn't he, to us believers. We're not getting what we deserve. That is hell. People think, I deserve heaven. You don't deserve heaven. All of us deserve hell. 
And I've done a good job of deserving hell. But that's his mercy given to me that I'm not going to get what I deserve. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's getting what I don't deserve. And here this man uses that Greek word for mercy, which means for atoning sacrifice. It is a word that is used in the verb here in one other place in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, he made atoning sacrifice and became the propitiation for the sins of the people. In the noun it's used in 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's our word here. In other words, what I'm telling you is this tax collector, this sinner is saying, God, be merciful to me through your atoning sacrifice for sins because I am a sinner. In seven words that this man goes away justified. That word justified is a legal term. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 3. Chapter 1 of Romans, it is the, the heathen that is a sinner. Chapter 2, the Hebrew that is a sinner as well, the self-righteous man. Chapter 3, we're all sinners. And then he brings out that doctrine of justification as he says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption through Jesus Christ. In other words, he went to the cross and he is our propitiation, which means that Jesus meets the righteous requirement from a righteous God for forgiveness of sin through the atoning work of him shedding his blood on the cross. He is your propitiation. He is the satisfaction. It satisfies God's requirement for you and for me to be forgiven. He's not angry at you. He loves you. Can you imagine if you saw all the sins of the world like he does, how we see things on TV and the news and it makes us angry? Jesus is the propitiation. He's not angry at you. He's forgiven you. Jesus is the satisfaction. He did the atoning work by shedding his blood on the cross. And now you are justified. It's a legal term. I used to tell my high school, you know, New Testament students in class, easy way to remember that word, justified. It means just as if I've never sinned. He's declared you innocent. Washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it comes through recognizing his love and provision for you and coming to him in humility and saying that I am a sinner in need of you, the Savior, Jesus Christ, because there's only one Savior, that is Jesus, the only one who died for you and rose from the grave. He is your salvation. And then as we understand the doctrine of justification, then Paul goes into the doctrine of sanctification. Listen, you were created not to continue in sin. God forbid, Paul writes, but that you might live for him. You see, grace means not that I'm free to go out and sin, but I'm free to live for you. So men ought to always pray and faint not. Why? Keep going to the Lord. Because he has the very best for you and he loves you. And he proved it because he justified you through the work of the cross. 
And if he loved you then, he loves you now. And he brought you into right relationship with the Father who pleased the Father to give his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you go to him. Lord, I may not understand everything that's going on. Stormy in my life like this, this week. I know that some of you had water coming into the house, your own home. We did as well. And Lord, things are a mess. Things, you know, just kind of keep adding up. But Lord, I trust in you because you love me. And I'm going to keep coming to you and faint not. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible mercy and grace in our lives. And I pray if there's anyone here that's listening at a live stream, in the coffee shop, in the sanctuary, listening on the radio later, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You've never come and humbly asked for forgiveness and surrendered your life to him. You've heard the gospel that Jesus went and died for your sins and he rose again and he is alive. And he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I paid the price. It doesn't come salvation by trying to be good or religious or joining a church. It only comes by surrendering your life to Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, will you do that? Today is the day of salvation. You can pray right where you're sitting that Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. I believe you died on that cross for me and that you rose again in your life. You're speaking to me. I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior and sit upon the throne of my life. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I ask that you'd help me to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And I thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, just as we're being respectful, will you do me a favor? Just put your hand up and put it back down. Anybody at all? God bless you. Anybody at all? Else out in the coffee shop? You're just making that statement that I believe in him. He's my Lord. And if you're listening on live stream, call in. Tell us the decision that you made. We're not going to prolong this. Raising your hand doesn't save you, but you're saying I've made a decision for him. Father, I thank you for the decisions that are made for you. And I pray that you would bless. Maybe there are those that I don't see anyone and everyone that made a decision for you to surrender their lives to you, but Lord, also in our lives that we would just continue to come to you and trust in you. Strengthen those who do feel faint as we look to you and your promises, knowing that you're going to work in our lives in the way that you desire for eternal good. As we leave this place, may we be encouraged and blessed and built up. I thank you for this time this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. amen.
Would you please stand?